Welcome back to another Monday in Paradise of the fall semester. No. All right, so um, in the past few days, I, uh, I had the opportunity to go play some basketball with uh, Danny and our lost brother, Nathan. He's at school now. Okay. <laughs> what do you mean by lost? <laughs> no, he's at school for a couple weeks. I, I went to play with uh, him and uh, Nathan and Michael and I, Michael being Danny and Vicky and Randy's <laughs> uh, brother. Um, and soon afterwards, we... Um, the, the, the playing devolved into uh, cordial uh, disagreement over theology, as one would only expect it to. And, and it was cordial. It really was. Um, uh, Faith. Yeah, I know. It surprised me, too. No, we had a fantastic conversation. Or, yeah, it was really good. And um, one of the things, we disagreed on so many fronts. <clears throat> How many of you have ever disagreed? Well, I don't care what it is, but you've disagreed on so many levels that you're like, what do we agree on? <laughs> okay, <clears throat> and so by the end of it, you're like, wow, I, uh, I really don't know where to go. But, so we, what we worked on in this conversation is sort of finding, <clears throat> finding a more fundamental place where we were, where we disagreed. <clears throat> and what we came to is that we had rather different views of what happened at the fall. That was sort of our, our starting point is, okay, you and I understand humanity's condition because of sin differently. That was sort of where it led to. And, and as we, we come to this text in Colossians tonight, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, uh, starting around... <clears throat> bless your heart. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be in, yes, verse 9 is where we're going to start. Uh, when, when we come to this text, what, what I noticed is that... Um, it takes us, this, this verse is going to take us right back to the first book of the Bible where we encounter the question, what happened to man when he fell? And the Reformed answer to that question is that man was fundamentally altered so as to have his intellect darkened and his will and affections being enslaved to nothing but evil. That is, from that day forward, man could do nothing that was truly good. So while I'm not necessarily going to endeavor to prove that point because I think it's a little bit beyond the the, the, the point of this text, the, this is a, a necessary and proper starting point for understanding this text because um, while, while that, that whole fall paradigm deals with the doom and gloom sort of of total depravity as starting in our federal head, if you're interested in theology, that's a word you should, a phrase you should jot down as federal head. Um, I, just on your own time, I'd encourage you to look up federalism versus seminalism in like Got Questions or something. That's a helpful little thing. Um, but our federal head, that basically means Adam, our representative, right? Uh, he, Adam was the, the guy who is representing all of humanity, and he couldn't, he didn't make it out of that situation, right? Obviously, Adam fell, and, and depending on what position you take on federalism or seminalism, his guilt is imputed to us, or his, um, or at the very least, his sin nature is handed off to all of us, right? That is, that is to say that Adam's, Adam's sin is handed to us. That's the doctrine of original sin. And, and so what, what's so very important about that and why the Reformed understanding of the fall is so critical to this text is because what we're going to see is quite, quite the opposite of total depravity. If total depravity is the depressing side of the coin, this passage should be the encouraging side of the coin because what, what that doctrine is teaching and is trying to set up is that man is radically altered at the fall. Man's radically altered at the fall so as to despise God and to work against God. Now, that imagio deo, as we talked about quite a bit at the basketball court, that image of God in us, you know, we're creating the image of God, right? That was some, we would say, quite tarnished and though not completely destroyed, a significant portion of what it means to be in the image of God was lost at the fall, right? Our intellect is darkened. Our desires are not the same. Our will is corrupted. We have a sin nature, etc. Tonight's text is Paul's sort of pinnacle before he turns into the practical bit of positive spiritual attributes to say that what was lost is being restored. It's this eschatological sort of renewal pa pattern that we will see. So tonight is all about creation being regained. What was lost in creation is regained. 
Um, though the restoration of the world is still coming, not yet here, it has already begun in another sense. Once again, we see that already not yet tension that I talk about so often. This is what it means to have an inaugurated, inaugurated eschatology. Said in simpler terms, Christ kicked off the redemption of the cosmos, the universe, that party of redeeming everything by, a, by redeeming a people, by choosing his church, by pulling his church and redeeming and making new creations out of the church is his first work in the redeeming of the cosmos, okay? Second Corinthians uh, 5, 16 through 19. It's the first reading for tonight. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this was from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So God's first work of new creation, right? Kind of that Isaiah thing, and that's where we're going to end, the, the new creation. The first bit of that is his church, right? When we're referred to as new creation... That's the beginning of that eschatological, all things being made perfect. And that's where we're going to go from tonight. So while all the universe is still being restored, what was lost in the fall is being regained in the church. Let's see how that happens. Let's, let's go to um, verse 9b, the second half of verse 9 of chapter 3 in Colossians. Um, chapter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> so we're finishing that list. It says, do not lie to one another. And then here we go. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, very similar idea here. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, is corrupt deceitfulness to deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what happens here? The old, old man is stripped off. That's what that passage says, stripped off. Sort of a common theme. All right, quick review here. Where else in Colossians have you seen that little phrase stripped off or pulled off or taken off? Where else have you seen that? Chapter 2. Where in chapter 2? What context? A little bit later. And we sort of covered similar ground when we were there. Cross, circumcision, what happened there? I want to say it's around verse 19, but that's not, that's not right. I'm sorry, verse... Yes, absolutely. So that is the same word. It's the same concept. Christ's circumcision of us. We've covered the same ground before. Now Paul's applying this into practical living. So some, some translations put it this way, that the old man was stripped off and the new man was put on. It's contrary to the ESV. So who is the old man? 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Oh, did you say 15, 45 through 49? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a living, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are in the earth, and is in the heavenly man, so are also those who are in heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the early man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Okay, so from that passage, who do you think that Paul is referring to when he says the old man here in Colossians chapter 3? Combining those two, who would you take the old man to be? Yes, go ahead. I'd say, I'd say probably Adam, Adam, if you're going by. Yes, sir. The same, what they say in Romans. Absolutely. And so, uh, you, growing up, reading this passage, I'm thinking the old man's coming off basically the way I'm 
would have read that, you know, just on the first glance, is the old Sam is being taken away, and I'm being made more like Christ. But really, the, the paradigm that is being set up here is more of the 1 Corinthians 15 paradigm. <clears throat> Notice the eschatological 1 Corinthians 15 resurrection, all this stuff happening there. The old Adam and the new Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam, okay? So, so Christ is the second Adam. He is the second part. Why? Because Adam was the representative of humanity, right? He was the one acting on behalf. What happened to Adam? He fell, plunged us all into sin. Christ is our representative, the second Adam, creating a new humanity. What does he do? He exalts us to righteousness, okay? Notice this parallelism that Paul is setting up here. Um, yeah, so all of us were in Adam, right? When I talked about this, but the way I'd like you to think of it, quick analogy, is sort of like a king acting on behalf of his people, okay? Something that that king or sovereign does is representative of the people of that nation. Romans 5, 12 through 19. This is sort of the, this is sort of the go-to text uh, for a discussion of federalism or Adam's headship of humanity, that Adam is representative of all of mankind before God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those uh, whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift followed many transgresses, brought justification. For if because one man's transgression death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, righteousness leads to justification and life of all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So what's Adam's gift to his posterity? It's death and sinfulness and destruction. Christ's gift to his posterity is life and righteousness and holiness, okay? And so what the, we, we sort of end that chapter, Romans 5. What happens to that old man when you become a Christian? Romans 6, 6. Give me a second. We know that our, our old self was crucified with him so that, that the body, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Right, so that old man, when he became a Christian, crucified. And that's what Paul is hearkening us to here. He says, seeing that you have put off, crucified, the circumcision which Christ gives us, is that that old man is removed from us. And before that, we had Adam living vicariously through us, but it's gone now, and we have Christ living in us. And when Christ became a man, there's different analogies that Scripture uses for us um, for for this. He says that he became a head of a new kind of people, a new nation, um, of which Christ became the head. First Peter two nine through ten, and then Ephesians two fifteen. Be ready in just a moment. Um, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim that excellency is to him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a nation, which was not a nation, but now is. And you can almost think of that even to Revelation, um, the, like the third cycle um, in sort of the book of Revelation where he says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, right? There are two nations. There is the, there's the kingdom of the world and there is God's nation, which he is restoring and creating a new nation of people. Ephesians 2.15, this is a new humanity, a new man, corporately, new man, think many people in this one man, that God is making a new people, Ephesians 2.15. By abolishing in his flesh the law of his commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Going back to our Colossians text then. So our old man is put off. That old Adam is gone. But Paul also puts right there with it that if, since we have put off the old self, what also goes with it is our old practices. The way you were is gone and over. Instead, you have this new nature. Um, and here, here, I find this to be very important just for the way I think, an important theological category for you to grasp. Oftentimes, um, let's see here, I try to give a good illustration of this. You hear people say something to the effect of, um, that they're, you know, I'm just a sinner, right? Something to that effect. And one of, the, one of the things that I want to critique about a statement like that is you are not a sinner, you are a saint who sins, okay? Which may sound like a pithy little uh, distinction vocabulary-wise, but the important thing is, is that there is not like, it's not like you have two natures, okay? It's not like if you f feed this nature or feed this nature, one's going to grow or not. If you are a Christian, you only have one nature, and that is Christ's nature within you. The old one is crucified, destroyed, put away. Okay, so you have Christ's nature if you're a Christian. And, and the a question that's going to immediately follow that is you say, Sam, I know myself and I still sin. Sure, you are a saint that sins, but you aren't a sinner. Um, Christ didn't redeem only part of you, right? You aren't one half saved or one third saved. As a matter of fact, that's been a very important point in church history is that man got, Christ had to be fully man for him to redeem all of you, right? If the historical point is that if there wasn't, a, if there was a part of him that wasn't fully human, then how could he have acted as our representative in that way? And so Christ becoming fully human, fully representing us, fully redeems all of us. So where does, where does, that, where does that sin come? Romans 6 teaches then that it is, there's one place left, right? There's only one place left for sin to get a shot at you, and that is, actually, where is that? The flesh. The flesh, absolutely. It's your unredeemed humanness. So the illustration that I, I like to give um, is that if you were to, <clears throat> if, if I were to pull up on any one of you who's a real Christian and shoot you in the head, I would, rede I would relieve you of all the sin, all the place that sin had left to attack you from, because I just separated your, your soul from your flesh, right? That's the only place left, okay? Now, I don't really encourage you to, you get jumped tonight out in the parking lot, just ask him to perfect your sanctification and uh, you know, redeem your, no. I don't know, college debts, y'all make your choices. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is what's so amazing, right? You know that going into eternity, you won't, you're, you won't have, your nature won't be any more redeemed in eternity future than it is today. You're as fully redeemed in your nature, your essence, as you're ever going to get. There is no old self left. It's gone. What you have to do is to get over the practices of the flesh. Now, when you go into these sections that Paul's telling us all these things that we're supposed to do, you don't hear him say, okay, guys, you got to work out of that old nature. Can't do that anymore. What is he saying? He's saying kill the flesh, right? And that's that paradigm that Paul is working off of. The old essence, the old nature, that's gone. You're working on showing that new nature more and more. The only thing that's holding you back is your flesh. So we gotta, we gotta cut those things out, okay? And I, but what a, what a liberating way to live, right? There's not this old self and this new self, and sometimes I feel more old self than new self. Objectively, there's, there's one, one new thing about you. You're only one person. You only have one nature. 
and you're just working on living more consistently with that nature. There isn't any part of you that is not redeemed. And that's a very important point, a very comforting point to me to know that I'm fully redeemed, I have a new nature, okay, I still sin, but that's not who I am. There's no, uh, there's no defining quality about my sin anymore. I just need to stop doing that, right? It's a bad habit. It's a, in some sense, I thought about this biologically, I don't know how well this holds up, forgive me. But in some sense, there has to be like an almost like a neurochemical, I want to do that. That's literally what the flesh is. It's, it's humanness that says, I still like that habit. I still like that dopamine hit that I got from all that sin I used to do. So I'm still going to do it. And our new nature is fighting against that flesh saying, no, 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 we, we don't work like that here. Um, I tell you what, I'm so sorry. I missed this Puritan quote a moment ago. Going back to Adam. <laughs> Going back to the Adam-Christ paradigm, this is so good. That's why I'm going back. There are but two men that are seen standing before God, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all others hanging at their girdles. And then Lenski writes about the unredeemed humanness. The old man is not converted. He cannot be. He is not renewed. He cannot be. He can only be replaced by the new man. There isn't any... That old nature has to be destroyed. It has to be crucified. That's Paul's paradigm. Now we bring in something new. Galatians 3.27, Romans 13.14. Instead of all that old stuff, now you've put on Christ. It's like putting on a new set of clothes is how Paul basically, that's almost the word picture that Paul uses is like a new garment. Galatians 3.27 to start. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Remember that word baptized for the next paragraph, by the way. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, let's go back to that baptism comment that Paul makes there. What do you guys think, just in your experience with the various churches and stuff, what do you think is a long time for someone to be allowed to become a member at a church? What do you think is reasonable? What? Like, you know, you go to a new church and they want you to take this class and do this thing. You know, how how long do you feel like is, you know, like, oh, that's a pretty good length of time to see if they're dedicated to the church? A year, year and a half. Okay. Before they're allowed to become a member? Like a consistent coming, yeah. Okay. Other thoughts? Just throw out some stuff. What do you think is reasonable? Four or six months. Four or six months. <clears throat> What's been your experience? <laughs> Let's try that. Most of the churches I've gone to don't really do members. Sure. So the reason I bring this up, uh, church history note here, and I think this will really illustrate the point. This is how the church viewed baptism in some sense. So there, and there's a lot that goes into this. This is just sort of a brief overview. There was a class of people in the early church called the catechumenate. Um, catechizing, right? You have the, the Westminster or the, the catechism, right, that they catechize you with. These are people who uh, they wouldn't allow into the church for three years, not into full membership. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, it's just something that happened. Um, because they wanted to see if they were dedicated. And there were plenty of things that happened, um, but in terms of you know the three years done, they get, they get examined to see if they're dedicated, they know their stuff. And so after three years, they'll be baptized into the church. And gender separated, what they would do is you would come um, after a night of fasting and a few other different things. Um, and again, gender separated, I believe. You would, they would completely, they would go into the baptismal area naked, okay? The minister would go down, baptize them, sometimes three times, depending on who you are. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just something you should know from church history, it happened. Um, but they would go down naked, and then they would come up and receive a new garment, like sometimes like a white robe. You see the imagery that the church is trying to build in here? They would anoint them with oil, and then they would be ushered, likely on Easter, for their first ever uh, Lord's Supper. That's the first time they'd be allowed to participate. So even in the early church, this sort of imagery of stripped off of who you were, receiving new robes, by the way, not, a, not as big of a deal in that culture. I would like to note that. But, well, um, yeah, I mean, the Olympics were practiced naked, so I mean, yeah. like, it's, yeah. 
But the imagery is you're completely stripped of who you were, that old garment, and now you come up out of the waters of baptism and using that verse, and, and you've put on Christ. You have, you have new life. You're a part of this church. You're going forward. You're a different person. You have Christ with you. So we have this new self, and then it says right here, um, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Now that we have this new self, we are gaining knowledge. And knowledge is one of the primary things which we lost in the fall. Um, if you're looking for the theologic terms, once again, to look up later, this would be considered the noetic effects of the fall. N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic or the intellectual effects of the fall. Um, which, by the way, is something, how, that's, how the, that's how the fall corrupted your intellect or your mind, which is, of course, a discussion of a debate. But this is often neglected, by the way, if you're into studying philosophy and such. Most often, we would, we would not bat an eye at the fact of saying that our behavior is corrupted. But in terms of studying philosophy and such, you also have to be aware that the intellect and logic itself may be somehow corrupted by the fall, something to keep in mind. But for our purposes, knowledge was lost at the fall. What kind of knowledge? Romans 1, 19 through 28. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that... So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling world man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, whom, who is blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with, sorry, someone's calling me, <laughs> with the women, and were consumed with passion for what one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, people knew God, right? I mean, they had that knowledge of God. They had it from nature, and really from the start, we had it in the garden. But what did man do with that knowledge? We intentionally lost that knowledge. Right? We suppress every bit of that knowledge that we had so we wouldn't, our consciences wouldn't be so accused. Right? If you purposefully forget that you have a God over you, then morality becomes a lot more flippant. And so we lost the knowledge of God. Humans knew about God, but we rejected him. And so our minds were given over what is wrong by God. And by the way, just a, and we're going to get to this Genesis account in just a moment. What was, what was the tree? name that we weren't supposed to eat of as the knowledge of good and evil genesis 3:22. look at some of the reasons that we got kicked out of the garden it all has to do with knowledge genesis 3:22. and the lord said the man uh, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever so much in that verse, such a merciful act of God to prevent man from living eternally in that sinful condition. But look at this. Experiential knowledge has always been central to morality. Once mankind knew God in that experiential way, we walked with him and had intimate fellowship with him, but we rejected that. And instead, instead we gained an experiential knowledge of evil. Now, we are being restored. And what are we, what are we being restored to exactly? Um, so we've, we're being renewed in knowledge after what? What are we being renewed in knowledge of? The image of its creator. We are being made back into the image of our creator. What was lost in the fall is being recovered. What, what we, once, we once fully knew what it meant to be in the image of God. We had the same ideals as our creator, the same morals. We were on the same team. 
but God, but it, it literally took God becoming man in, in Christ for us to regain this image. Romans 8, 29. This is talking about us becoming like Christ, but that's the thing, right? Like we, mankind, because of that inherited sin nature from Adam, has so corrupted our image that what had, what happened to happen in Christ's birth? What, what happened there? What, what, what was missing? What part about Christ's birth was a little different? There was no man. There was no man, right? And so was that inherited sin nature? Was that tarnished image passed down? No, he was in the likeness of fallen flesh, but he wasn't a tarnished image, right? He had God as his progenitor. Okay, Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Right, so our, our whole existence is to be channeling, to becoming the image of Christ. And so here it says our creator, there it says into Christ. And, and combining Colossians and Hebrews, Hebrews, we've talked, we talked about that, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, what is, what is Christ called in Hebrews chapter 1? High priest. Yes, what else? Back up a few verses. Greater than Yep, back up a couple more. You are my son. Yeah, I think go forward one. <laughs> okay. Christ is called the what? Firstborn. Mediator. Advocate. Okay. <laughs> new, new Adam, was that not? No, that's not. Alpha, Omega. Exact, exact impression, the exact image of God, right? And so when it says being, and Colossians says that God the Father created the worlds through whom? Or John as well. I mean, who, who's, who's the instrumentality of creation if you want to get fancy? Christ, right? So God the Father creates through Christ the Son. And who is the exact image of God the Father? Christ. So saying, being made into the creator, being transformed in the likeness of the Son, if you're being transformed into the likeness of the Son, you're being transformed into the exact image of God the Father, who is Spirit. Right? It's all one and the same, because Christ is God. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty simple, right? And so our whole point in recovering the image of God, Christ, Christ did this for us, right? Christ is the second Adam. There are so many illustrations in the Gospels of this. Um, I'm getting on a little rabbit trail. These things make me very excited. Um, Think of Jesus going into the wilderness. That's nice, right? He just kind of went into the wilderness for no purpose. Why would he go into the wilderness? To survive temptation that Adam could not, right? These, this is, each of them went through their time of testing in a garden, if you will. There are so many parallels. Um, it, it's not quite, when you read something like Matthew and it's fulfilling something, like it says, um, just another one off the top of my head. This really confused me, which is why I'm, throwing this in here. It says, out of Egypt I have brought my son. And Matthew's like, aha, I got it. That's talking about Christ. And then you go back to Hosea and you're like, am I really talking about Christ? I don't know if that prophecy was talking about Christ. It's not as if Hosea was saying, there's going to be a guy who's coming out of Egypt. What is it? It's a, typolo it's a typological fulfillment. Israel came out of Egypt. Christ comes out of, uh, out of Egypt. All of these things, Adam, Ad, Adam and Christ did a lot of the same things, but where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Christ always prevails. And so it's not a fulfillment in the sense of prophecy will happen in 372 years and five months. It's more like, and I, I mean this honestly, it's more like a Marvel sort of Easter egging in the Old Testament than it is straight up prophesying like, boom, in three years, this is going to happen. And so when the New Testament authors are saying this was fulfilled, often what he's saying is all that plot that went wrong, if you will, in the Old Testament, where Israel failed and Adam failed and this went wrong and that went wrong, Christ is doing that perfectly. Boom. Everything's being made new. Everything's going down the path that it was supposed to. And you are getting to follow in this. And so when we're being called to follow Christ, we're really being called to do everything that Adam failed at, what Israel failed at as it you can either look at it individually through Adam or corporately through Israel and the church. But we're trying in following Christ to, to do and fulfill God's perfect plan that was so often failed all along the way. And so Christ, being that perfect image, 
is what we can follow ourselves and model ourselves after, just like the Apostle Paul then turns around and says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, right? You find someone who's doing a great job imitating Christ, imitate them. You're just going down the chain. God the Father, Christ, Paul, Paul, this person, you know, you're, it's just a discipleship, discipleship chain. That is what it is. You are becoming the new creation by being restored into that lost image. Everything that was lost, everything that was lost can be regained. That's how powerful Christ is. That new nature, everything, you ever want to know what it's, this, this, is so, this is so perfect, right? This is the absolute basis for how I'm going to approach the rest of chapter 3. Um, do you want a perfect marriage? Do you, have you ever wondered like, wow, what would it have been like to be married pre-fall or to have kids and a family pre-fall or to be employed pre-fall or, you know, all these different social constructs, if you will, pre-fall. You're like, man, Adam, if you just, <laughs> I'm going yeah, to throw down when I see you someday, right? Like throwing me into all this. That's how I'm going to approach the rest of this because if you want what, what Christian marriage should be, we're going to get to marriage here in a few weeks, Christian marriage should be the recovery of the Edenic state of marriage, right? We have two people who are being restored into that perfect image. And so your family is a chance to recreate Eden in a fallen world, right? Your, your little home your parenting, look at the rules for Christian households 18 and onward in chapter four, or chapter three going into chapter four. All those social things, they get to be your opportunity to recreate and enjoy Eden in this life. God is inaugurating his eschatological redemption in you and in your relationships and in your homes and in your work and all these things. So you get a chance to experience what Eden would have been like the more and more you are transformed into the image of Christ. And that's, that's a really cool paradigm because we're, you know, you're always like, man, I really wish I was on either side, either pre-fall or end of revelation, and we're, you know, getting to the good part where, you know, water's flowing and trees of life and all this good stuff. You have that shot, right? Now, it's not as simple because we have this flesh nature still. We're working through this, but you can. That's the power Christ has given you is to recover that Edenic, State and so when I'm when, I'm, when we're going to talk about marriage here in a few weeks, guess where I'm going to be drawing off some of my material from in terms of what marriage should look like pre-fall, Adam and Eve, because that's what we're attempting to get back to, right? Is that innocence and that perfection and that beauty that was lost and tarnished? I want to be recreated in your homes. That's that's the way I want you to go into thinking about this. Look at the next verse, and I think you'll see this played out. Verse 11. Here, there is not Jew or Greek, and that's different, by the way. Jew and Greek are normally opposite. That's why I said that. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. That's an odd one. We'll get to that. Slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Within this new humanity that has this new knowledge, this restored knowledge, this renewed knowledge after the image of our creator, or in other words, in Christ, after Christ, what happens? There's a lot of unity to go around, right? Unity along all lines. Greek and Jew, past racial barriers are gone. Circumcised or uncircumcised, past religious barriers are gone. Within that uncircumcision, we have people that even the Greeks couldn't stand, barbarians. This is an onomatopoetic word. Uh, the Greeks couldn't, anyone, anyone know where the word barbarian comes from? It comes from the sound that they heard them making. It just sounded like bar, bar. Uh, kind of like you'd hear somebody say blah, blah, blah. If we said they're blah, blah, ians almost. It's, exactly. It's they were like, oh, it, it, what an ugly language, bar, bar, bar. You know, and so they called them <laughs> barbarians. And, and just, it's a mocking thing. But uh, this is what's so cool. Unusually, Paul, you know how he's normally contrasting Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. Barbarian and Scythian is not a contrast, but an accentuation. So Scythians were people that uh, Athenian comedy were making fun of. Um, they were considered the most rude and brutal um, of 
the barbarians. They're the worst of the worst, if you will, um, even to the Greeks or to the Jews. Uh, they drink they drank blood of the first that they killed, used scalps as napkins, skulls as drinking vessels. They never washed. They're drunken and violent folks. Uh, Josephus thought they were, like, quote, little better than wild animals, and Tertullian insulted the heretic Marcion. How many of you have heard of Marcion? That's a name you should be familiar with. Um, it turns out uh, Tertullian didn't really like Marcion. Um, and so he said that uh, the only way he could think to insult him was to say that he thought Marcion was worse than a Scythian, is what he said, which is pretty bad. That's a pretty high insult. So they were the worst of the worst and should be, in some sense, quote unquote, the most discriminated against in the most severe way. But did the gospel have any room for this? No, that's Paul's point. Absolutely not. So was there any room for classism between slave and free or his master? Absolutely not. Um, in that culture, in the words of Aristotle, slaves were seen as, quote, a living tool as a tool is an inanimate slave. Um, Bruce notes, there was no other place in the ancient world where a master could come to an assembly and be directed and preached to by a slave because by reason of his spirituality had risen to be a presbyter or an elder in, in that congregation, right? And so inside of that world, the social distinctions remain and Paul's not trying to obliterate those. I mean, you still have your, your, you still have your role in society, if you will. But in, in terms of essence, in terms of the gospel, in terms of the church, boom, we're just all there. And so where else could a master, in some sense, be subject to the preaching of a slave? Nowhere but the church. Um, I think of the martyr girl, Blandina. Anyone heard of Blandina before? Or Perpetua? Anyone? Perpetua, yeah. Blandina was one who died side by side with her master in persecution. Um, in no other circle, a Roman patron um, named Perpetua was holding hands with uh, Felicitas in the Carthage arena, and they stood side by side facing death. Facing death. Um, interestingly, Perpetua, uh, yes, Perpetua, I'm sorry, yes, I think it was Perpetua. Uh, she was eight months pregnant when taken to the arena and um, had a, they prayed for her because they didn't want her child to die, and uh, she did end up delivering early. Uh, she came, she went into to labor with their prayers a month early, and it was a very rough delivery. And let me, let me read this. This is what one of the prison assistant guards had to say when she was giving birth. You suffer so much now, what will you do when you are tossed to the beast? Little did you think of them when you refused to sacrifice, sacrifice to the other gods. And she replied, now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beast, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. And she gave birth and another woman in the church raised that child as if it were her own. And then she died hand in hand with someone of a completely different social class. What other group, what other power could unite people like that than the gospel. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. And the early church really did a great job at it. Um, you had people, and this is interesting, people falling in love from upper classes to lower classes because they met somewhere and had something in common. There was no other point of intersection, if you're familiar with intersectionality, that mattered anymore because there was only one defining point of intersection, and that was that they were Christians, that they there was nothing about that old self that mattered anymore. There was only the intersection of the new man. And so who cared? Because it didn't really matter. In the final analysis, if I was Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or what's missing here, by the way? What's missing out of this list? Jew and Greek. Those are both there. Gentile. That's there. What's in Galatians that's not here? Male or female. Just an interesting note if you wanted to look at something. Paul left it out for some reason. But none of these things matter at all. None of them matter at all. This is why we can have unity in the church. Because you're always attracted to people who are similar to you, right? I mean, similar within reason. Similar interests, um, similar goals, similar life vision. It doesn't mean you perfectly align on every personality point of all time. But the important things the direction you're heading, the defining points about you, 
Those are the things you're attracted to, and that's what's critical in the gospel, is that people from all different walks of life can come together in unity. So yes, other passages, no male, no female as well, no gender distinctions are relevant in our standing before God. Though there are gender rules that God has designed for each of us within the redeemed, Edenic order-wise, we are equals. And even in Eden, guess what? There were different roles. Because roles aren't bad, being an employee isn't bad, being a slave in this case, as, as I will argue, is not bad. It's not bad to be a master. It's not any of these things. It's how you live those. Do you live those in the, the quality of life that Christ would have you to? It's not wrong. Christ, you, know, you hear these tension verses where it's like Christ is equal with God, and then Christ is... My father is greater than I. How do you reconcile this? Well, obviously, his role. Being, being subordinate in role does not mean subordination in essence. Okay? And, and so you can have all of these equality. You have such equality and yet still fulfill different and unique roles and not do it jealously or hurtfully. And that's what we're going to get into and when we see how things are worked out interpersonally. Right? That's, that's what it means to work this new nature out interpersonally is that sure you're equals, but now how do you negotiate this with other people when you get irritated with people because they're over you and your tempers flare and all this sort of stuff. So why, why, to finish this passage out, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all because Christ is all and in all. He is unifying the universe. Go back to chapter one, chapter two. He's unifying everything. He is all, cosmic Christology. There it is again. He's unifying the universe and while he is doing, while he's all out there, he's also all in here. He's also in each and every one of you. So while he's working big picture, he's also in each and every one of you. And so Christ is everything that connects you and I. That Christ has his nature so imprinted on each and every one of us that it doesn't matter if you're Brazilian or American or Romanian or a low-level employee, or CEO, or rich, or poor, or female, or grew up in a Christian home, or converted to being Christian, or whatever, that's the best I can make for religious distinction in some sense in our circles is grew up this way, grew up this way, circumcised, uncircumcised, you came in, and what's happening? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter if you're, <laughs> yeah, it's here in the Greek somewhere, it doesn't matter if you're homeschooled, or public schooled, or even private schooled, no. Christ is a unifying factor. And by the way, there's plenty of homeschooled people that haven't understood what it is like to have Christ inside, people who've gone up in a Christian home. It wasn't until they realized much later what the faith meant for themselves. None of those external things actually matter. Sure, you may have more people from one group or demographic that are a certain way. That's fine. But that doesn't mean anything, right? That has no actual defining point or uh, power. It's all Christ, and it's Christ being in us that gives us unity. And now, from here on out, it's time to recover our original identity, right? This is the whole point, right? Going back to this, right? Our sin nature, all the things that we regret, all those things that are erased at the cross, those things are gone, those things are done. That was all part of Adam being crucified. All of it's gone. Now we have Christ, we have perfection in us that needs to be worked out. How are we going to do that in our lives? How are we going to restore our identity that was lost? How are we going to restore Edenic relations that we long for? That's the sort of question that we're going to be pushing for throughout the rest of this chapter, whether it's society or in the home, that unity is what Christ brings. So while we are all lost in Adam at the start, Christ has accomplished the redemption of his people and the creation of this new universe has started already and it started within you. You are the beginning of the restoration which God intends for the cosmos through Christ. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, this is the Old Testament text on the new creation, which is kicked off in you guys. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. 
For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Josh, you want to finish this out in prayer? Dear Lord, um, what an amazing, amazing gift it is, and how humbling it is to know that those of us here in Christchurch, um, I assume that all of us, Lord, I pray that um, all of us have been chosen, that you have killed our old self, that has been crucified with Christ, and that we have now been clothed a new life with a new being, with a new identity. And Lord, I pray that we would um, go forth um, living like this, not as sinners saved by grace, but as um, dead sinners that are now alive, living saints that um, still struggle with our flesh. And so God, I pray that you, we, would, um, we would continually um, chip away at our flesh and destroy it and that you would do that um, until we will finally be removed from it, stripped of the last thing of um, this earth and uh, be brought into a new creation. And so God, I pray that you would help us to go forth this week, that we would um, keep this in mind, that we would know that we are truly a chosen race, a holy priesthood, and, um, and that these um, social distinctions don't matter um, whenever Christ is um, the center of our lives. What unites all of us is you and not um, what games we play, where we're from, or um, how we grew up. And so God, I praise you for doing this amazing thing in all of us. And I praise you for this community that you've given us. And God, I pray that you would help us all to continually kill our flesh, to strive to live for you, and to conform even more every single day to you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.